I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, we continue our conversation with Joel W. Motley III, the creator and producer of a documentary whose subject is someone he's very familiar with, his mother. The documentary is called The Trials of Constance Baker Motley, and that's where we resume our conversation, wanting to know from Joel, how did you go from being a lawyer to becoming a documentary filmmaker? Not easily, easily. Uh, but around 2010, uh, Rick Rogers, the parent of one of my son's friends, was at our house and he saw some photographs that we have here at the house of my mother with Lyndon Johnston in January of 1966 when she was, uh, they were announcing her, her appointment to the bench. And it was a big event, a lot of press coverage. And, and he said, oh, what's this all about? And I explained to him who she was. And he, Rick is a filmmaker. And, and he said, we should make a movie about this. And I said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And, uh, and we did. And it took, it only took five years <laughs> for a 27 minute documentary. My advice to the audience is never make a documentary. It's, and if I'd known how hard it was at the start, I never would have done it. But once I got into it, uh, I just kept going and I'm, I'm glad I did. Well, I'm glad you did too, Joel. I've, I've enjoyed it. I've learned a lot from it. And I'm sure that when others see it, they're going to be glad that you stuck with it as well. When your subject matter is your mother, where do you begin your research? You already know her, so where do you start? Uh, well, a, a couple of big starting points had to do with, well, certainly the three principal um, clients of my mother um, who integrated uh, the colleges in the South. That would be James Meredith, who integrated Ole Miss, Charlene Hunter Galt, who was the first um, of the two black students to go to the University of Georgia, uh, and Harvey Gant, who in integrated uh, Clemson. And so I've known them since I was a kid, and they were, I was about 10, and they were about 20 going through these cases, and used to visit our house in, in New York. I used to see them in the South as well, and just we, we're in touch over the years. So when I started on the film, called them up and said, I'd like to interview you, they instantly said, oh, absolutely. And so they were very helpful. The other thing I had that was helpful was my mother participated in the Columbia University Oral History Project. So we have about 20 hours of her um, oral history describing her work in the civil rights movement. And that uh, enabled her to be the narrator of the film that we made. Mrs. Motley, you have been described as being soft-spoken and quiet, but very, very tough. Would you say that's an accurate description? <laughs> well, I read that in the New York Times this morning, and I'm sure they're always accurate. <laughs> There's that wry sense of humor of hers again. We talked about that early in our conversation, uh, and it was from that press conference you just mentioned. Um, it sounds like the documentary is more than 
just her time with the NAACP. It seems to be more comprehensive. It just seems to cover her whole life. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. It has her talking about her childhood growing up in New Haven. And and then the story I told you about how she got to go to college and graduate school. And then it, and then her talking about her um, her time in politics. Uh, and it's very, uh, very helpful to have that uh, oral history. The Trials of Constance Baker Motley. That title of your documentary clearly has a double meaning. Naturally, the trials in the courtroom she handled comes to mind, but it also implies something else. Was that intentional? Uh, is that something you were deliberately going after? Yes, we did. No, it's a, it's a, there is a double entendre, as we say, in the title of the film, uh, both implying the trial work itself and then um, it was, you know, the movement was a struggle for everyone on, on many levels. Um, and I don't, I don't think that her being a woman particularly affected her work uh, at the Legal Defense Fund, certainly. Um, but it certainly was an eye opener for people in the South where a lot of these cases happened, where, you know, in her autobiography, she, she describes how the Meredith case was not actually her first time in Mississippi. Her first time in Mississippi was 1949 when she and Bob Carter, who was then the head lawyer of the NAACP, well, not the head lawyer, Thurgood was the head lawyer, but Bob was, was right under Thurgood. And they went to try the teacher equalization of salaries case, because in those days, 1949, we had separate but equal. This was before the Brown decision. And teachers, black teachers, not surprisingly, weren't being paid the same as white teachers. So they brought a suit in federal court about that. And um, I can tell you a little story about that. Bob Carter was examining the school's chancellor on the witness stand and about these unequal salaries. And the, and the school's chancellor was mumbling his answers. And the judge said to him, you have to speak up so the lawyer can hear you. And he did. And, and then when the when the trial was over that day, uh, Bob said to my mother he was going to go get a haircut in the black community and find a barbershop, and he did. And he walked in the barbershop, and all the guys in the barbershop were reenacting this scene because mm. the notion that one white man would order another white man to speak up so a black man can hear you mm-hmm. was mind-blowing to them, mm-hmm. absolutely just, you know, they couldn't believe it. They. It's like somebody flying to the moon. And that first day, all the seats in the courtroom were taken up by white folks and the black folks were sort of standing around them in the aisles. And Bob Carter told them, you know, in the federal court, there's no segregation. You can sit wherever you want. So the next morning when he and my mother arrived in court, all the seats were taken by black folks Mm. who had gotten there at six in the morning, taken up all the seats, and the white folks in, around couldn't stand the thought of themselves having to stand behind these seated black folks. So the judge actually had to open the door at the back of the courthouse. The white folks could pass by and peek in and see this spectacle that was going on, which included a black woman lawyer. And I don't think in 1949 there were any white women lawyers. Uh, and so, that gives you a sense of what a 
shock it was for people in the South to uh, to see a black woman lawyer. That's an interesting point you raise just about how the mere presence of black lawyers in the courtroom would have an impact on black people, uh, them seeing black lawyers interacting on an equal and sometimes dominant footing with white people. That's uh, an intriguing point. And she talks about that a lot in her biography. Yes. Well, that the most graphic representation of that in my mother's autobiography is about the local lawyer in Mississippi when they, uh, I believe it was the, the school case. If it wasn't a school case, it was certainly the Meredith case where you had to have a local lawyer. You still today, if you're coming from New York, legal defense fund or something, you need a local lawyer to, to sit with you in, in a court. And uh, they had trouble finding, I mean, Arthur Shores was courageous, but as I said, his house was firebombed. So in Mississippi, they found a guy who was terrified of, helping them, but he, he felt like he had to. And he was so frightened that during the, the trial, he would sit with my mother and Bob Carter, but he would sort of turn his back to them a little bit as if to say to the white folks, I'm not really with these people. I'm just here, you know? And then he would get up all hunched over and and then when he would talk to the judge, he 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 wouldn't turn his back on the judge. He'd sort of you know, cower and, and shuffle backwards, you know. And, but as the trial went on over the course of a couple of weeks and it was clear they were going to win, this guy started to stand up straight, mm-hmm. hold his head up. And just, you know, that was, as I said, the most graphic example of what you're describing where, where the success of my mother and Thurgood and Carter and the other lawyers really did give black folks and black lawyers specifically uh, a sense of confidence. That is so true. That's where everyday people began to get their confidence. And that's something that's overlooked when we tell the story of the civil rights movement. Um, Your mother amassed quite a number of firsts. The first black woman elected to the New York State Senate, first woman to be elected Manhattan Borough President, uh, the first black woman to be a federal judge. And for a while, she was the only woman to be on staff of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. How did she feel about all of that? And how did she handle the distinction of being first? Um, with style and grace. You know, one thing about my mother, she preceded the women's movement. So in her mind, and then in my mind, there wasn't a great, there wasn't really any consciousness about her being the, the only woman on the staff of the Legal Defense Fund. Um, Thurgood never really thought about it because he believed she could do the work and that, and that was enough. Thurgood um, didn't bother him at all. And the, uh, the reason I think so, his mother was a professional. His mother was a school teacher. So the idea of a woman being, you know, in a professional job, he, you know, he didn't think anything strange of a woman being a, a lawyer. She 
was very committed to the mission. She, was, she wasn't that focused on self-promotion, um, but she knew that she was very able and successful and I think just very pleased to, to have these appointments. Um, and when I say appointments, she was essentially appointed to the Senate seat. Uh, in those days, you know, the Democratic Party really controlled uh, that, that part of New York politics and they would fill a vacant seat, which they did in the winter of 1964. And then in the fall, she was able to run as an incumbent. And the same thing happened a year later when she filled a vacancy in the president's office in early 65. And then I guess in the fall of 65, ran again as incumbent for our president. I guess that's when John Lindsay was running for mayor. And, and she enjoyed politics um, for a while, uh, but I think clearly didn't want to make a career of it. And when the judgeship opened up, she was very glad to get out of politics. As, and my father was too. He had to buy two tuxedos uh, when they were in politics. And he was, they enjoyed it a bit, but it, it got a little tired after a while. You know, so it was really in, in, in subsequent years, after the 1970s, when, you know, the women's movement kind of took off, that people would, would talk to her about that. And um, she, uh, as I say, it was, you know, she was really focused on the mission at the time during the civil rights movement. And uh, I think the fact that she was a woman just wasn't, wasn't a big factor. Did she ever say what was her favorite or most memorable case? Not really. I think they were all uh, significant. The Meredith case was certainly the most, what can I say, most dramatic. I mean, she described it as the last battle of the Civil War. And the reason she said that was because the federal troops had been sent to Little Rock to, to get the Little Rock Nine admitted in 1957. But in the Meredith case, as you see in my film, the Kennedys thought they had a deal with the governor of Mississippi, Ross Barnett, that he would allow Meredith to register when the, when the case was over. And the Fifth Circuit had ruled that Meredith had to be admitted. And there was no, the Supreme Court wasn't going to hear the case. And so the Kennedys sent Meredith with a, three or four federal marshals to register in Oxford, Mississippi at the university. and. The governor had promised them that uh, Meredith would be protected by state troopers or National Guard, and they weren't any. No National Guard, no state troopers. And there was a riot on the campus, and, and Meredith was almost could have been killed. But luckily, they were able to get him out. Two other people were killed on the campus in the rioting. Man has just died. Did he die? Yes. Which one? State police? Uh, state police. Yeah. Well, you see, we got to get order up there, and that's what we thought we'd have. President, please, why don't you, uh, can't you give an order to try to remove me? How can I remove him, Governor, when there's a, a riot in the street, and he may step out of that building and something happened to him? I can't remove him under those conditions. Let's get order up there, then we can do something about Americans. Surrounded with plenty of officials. Well, we've got to get somebody up there now to get order and stop the firing and the shooting. Then you and I will talk on the phone about Meredith. And the Kennedys were livid because the governor had double-crossed them. They knew they had to fix it, and they knew they could only, they had to fix it one time. <laughs> they couldn't sort of incrementally fix it. So they sent 15,000 soldiers 
from Kentucky and Ohio to Oxford, Mississippi, where the population was probably only about 10,000. So it really was an occupation army sent to Mississippi for the purpose of enforcing federal law on Mississippi. And so in that sense, it really was a replay of what happened in the Civil War. Well, of course, what really happened in the Meredith case, when the state decided to resist, they were playing out the last chapter in the Civil War. I think most Americans have forgotten that there was a war, a civil war in this country over the rights of black Americans, and that the South fought the North over this question. And there was lingering bitterness and disagreement for many years, and the South insisted on denying black Americans full citizenship rights. And so here we were in 1961 with the South saying to the North, in effect, for the rest of the country, we're not going to uh, give blacks uh, equal rights. We think that uh, separate but equal is good enough for them. And so the Constitution was really put to a test here. And I saw a documentary while I was making my film. I actually saw a documentary by a fellow who had gone to Ole Miss, forgotten his name, but he did this documentary and he had footage of these 15,000 soldiers billeted in tents on the campus. And when you look at it, it looks exactly like the Matthew Brady pictures you saw in the Civil War of these long stretches of Union soldiers in tents. And that's why it's the, on the cover of her autobiography is her walking with Meredith. Um, it really was a, uh, a, almost a reenactment of the Civil War. Is there anything you learned about your mother that you did not know or that surprised you or that you came to know better after doing the documentary? I think that it mostly was was uh, things that I knew, but I, I got them more in depth from doing the interviews um, with uh, with Charlene and and Meredith and, and, and Harvey Gant. Um, but uh, listening to the oral history tapes was particularly moving because, you know, the, the recordings were so clear. It almost felt like I should be able to pick up a phone and call her, you know. Hmm. You mentioned earlier that you structured the film in a way where she was going to be the narrator of her own documentary. Was there anything that she said that uh, either stood out or was somewhat unexpected from when you first began the project? At the end of the film, uh, in the press conference, she talks about, uh, they've asked her, their reporters are asking about the meaning of the civil rights movement. And she says, well, I'm, I'm not sure that Civil rights is the right word, she says. Well, um, I don't know whether it's proper to say civil rights, but I think our major problem here is the uh, desegregation of the ghetto. Really, it's now becoming a question of economic rights. And she says that she'd been working then as borough president on a plan to use the model cities project that had been passed in Johnson administration to try to, to eliminate the ghetto. I read in the Times this morning that the president has put in the budget an item for $12 million, which was what we were hoping for, 
for demonstration projects in urban centers. I uh, plan to write a letter today to the mayor urging him to immediately make our application because we have a preliminary plan, as you know, for the reclamation of Harlem. And I certainly hope that we can, in New York, uh, secure the first federal demonstration grant of how to um, do away with ghettos. And to bring equal op job opportunities to blacks. And her, her point was that the movement of civil rights, of equal rights under law, had, had sort of reached a, a zenith of success, but that the real next line of struggle was economic. And that proved to be true. She says in the film that black people will never have their rights as long as they are ghettoized, was the term that she used. Because I think there is an inherent incompatibility between the existence of ghettos and the achievement of equal rights for Negroes in the North. Negroes will never have their rights as long as they are ghettoized. And she was right uh, that we have come to learn the importance of economic empowerment alongside political empowerment. Now, you've definitely had a front row seat to a number of historical events, uh, not the least of which was the March on Washington. I understand that your mother and father had seats on the main stage, the main platform, and your father was supposed to sit with your mother, but you insisted that you sit with her. How did that come about? Well, I, I don't know who, how that all went down, but... I was there. If it hadn't been for my father, we wouldn't have been there because we were, this was in August and we had gone up to Martha's Vineyard on vacation. And this was in the days before Facebook and the internet. So there was chatter about this march, but nobody really knew how big it was going to be. August 63, uh, I was on vacation for a week or two with my husband and son at Cape Cod. And um, my husband said, well, aren't we going to this march on Washington? And I said to him, well, I guess I better go because, you know, nobody else will be there except those of us who are involved. And my mother didn't want to go. She just wanted to rest from the work. And my father had been in touch with some folks by phone and he was picking up a sense that this march was really going to be a much bigger deal than they realized. And so he finally talked her into going and we're, we're glad that he did. We left our breakfast and ran to the, um, to the, um, where this march was going to be. My son and I were sitting on the platform. I had two tickets to the platform and my husband and son my husband and I was supposed to sit there, but my son insisted that he was going to sit up there with me. Um, because it was one of the great events in our history. Um, I think that Marshall Washington was the largest demonstration in American history uh, prior to that time. Joel, what would you say is her lasting legacy and importance to society in general? to the legal profession specifically, and even more particularly, to black lawyers? Well, the title of her autobiography is Equal Justice Under Law. 
And that was her mission in life as a lawyer and as a judge. And I think that her work really was a part of the, the movement really brought the 14th, 13th Amendment and its slavery, the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment really came to life in the civil rights movement. They had been enacted after the Civil War at the beginning of Reconstruction, but when Reconstruction fell apart in 1876, those amendments ceased to be of value in enforcing uh, the rights of, of, of Black Americans. And the Civil Rights Movement turned that around and created the world that we have now, which is not perfect, but it's vastly more integrated economically and politically than it had been. And her life is an example of the power of the law in our society uh, to transform the society for the better. Um, nowadays, when we have the rule of law under severe attack, um, we're reminded of, of that. But her life gives me confidence that we'll overcome this the struggle as we did in the 1960s. Joel, thank you so much for joining us on Hidden Legal Figures. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and we really appreciate you taking some time to tell us about your mother, Constance Baker Motley. Sure, I, I appreciate being a part of it. I look forward to it and you'll send me something so I'll be able to hear the podcast when it's ready. Oh, we most definitely will. Joel, thank you again. That was Joel W. Motley III. Throughout our conversation with Joel, you heard him talk about the cases his mother handled, and there was one in particular that he mentioned on several occasions. That was the James Meredith case, the one that desegregated the University of Mississippi. On our next episode, we'll take a detailed look at that case and the role of Constance Baker Motley in handling it. Well, James Meredith was an unusual young man. Uh, he was the kind of person uh, that one seldom sees in a young person, contrary to what many Southerners believed, particularly Southern officials. We did not solicit James Meredith. Going to the University of Mississippi was James Meredith's idea. That and more will be part of our next episode as we continue to shine the spotlight on Constance Baker Motley. Thank you for listening, and be sure to join us next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.